The book of Acts, we're going to be in chapters 23 and 24 tonight. Um, and we're going to pick it up in chapter 23, verse 11 to start with. But I want us to first look at a phrase out of Acts 24, 15. That's actually where I want to begin tonight. The first phrase out of Acts 24, 15. Remember, we're studying the book of Acts because in this book we are seeing Christ's vision for his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what is Christ's vision for his church? What, what does he desire? What are his wishes for God's people? And we see this sort of playing out throughout the book of Acts. As we go through it, we, we learn more about what Christ's vision is for his people. Well, one of those desires is that we would have hope in him. Notice Paul says in Acts 24, 15, I have hope in God. I don't know what you're going through in your life right now or what you're dealing with or what you're having to navigate, but I know this. God wants us to get to a place like Paul where we have hope in him, where our confident expectations are all wrapped up in him and in his word and what he has promised. And what we're going to see tonight, both in Acts 23 and Acts 24, is that Paul's hope was well-founded. Anytime you and I put our hope in God, it is a well-founded, stable, secure hope. And we're going to see tonight from Paul's life, but also we can apply it to our life, how vital, how essential it is that we have hope in God. Because like we've been even talking about on Sunday morning, our faith will be tested. Well, so are our hope. And there's times in our life where we need to cling to the hope that we have in God because God's ways are not our ways and God's timing is not our timing. We'll talk more about that later. But I want to go back now to 2311, Acts 2311. I want to pick it up where we left off last week. If you remember, the Jewish mob was wanting basically to tear Paul apart and kill him at this point. And he was rescued by the Roman commander Lysias. And he was brought into the barracks in the Antonia Fortress, which is right beside the temple complex. And the Bible then tells us in Acts 23, 11, that following night, the Lord stood near Paul, or literally had been standing near Paul all this time, and told Paul, have courage. Find your courage in me. And I, I want to go back to that. I, I want us again, because maybe, you know, you weren't here last week. I want you to know tonight, God wants you to know that he is staying and standing near to you. He is always present. He is always there for us. And that he wants us to find the courage to navigate life and to deal with life and the circumstances of life. He wants us to find that courage in him, in knowing that he's with us and that anything that we go through, we're going to go through with God. That's how you and I can be courageous. And then God says this to him. He says, just as you have been my witness in Jerusalem, you must testify in Rome. Now, when God says a must, 
it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If, if God says, this is something that must happen, then my goodness, that is something, as we say, you can take to the bank, you can put your life on, you can stake your life on. It can give us absolute stability and security when we are standing, if you will, on the promises of God, and God promised Paul, you will testify for me in Rome. Now, why that's important is because as we pick up the story then in 23, 12 through 15, we see a conspiracy against Paul. We are informed that the Jews in Jerusalem hate Paul so very much that 40 of them, 40 men, have basically made a vow that they will not eat or drink. That's pretty big vow, right? They will not eat or drink anything until they have killed Paul, <clears throat> until they've eliminated him, murdered him. And think about that. It only takes one to kill somebody, but 40 are banding together and basically saying, Paul's a dead man. We will not eat anything, we will not drink anything until we have killed Paul. That's the hatred that they had against this man. But something that we need to keep in mind when we look at this passage, and that is, yes, they hated Paul, but let's not forget that they really hated what Paul stood for and what Paul represented. It wasn't Paul himself, is that Paul was standing up for Jesus Christ. And let's not forget the words of Jesus, because I think sometimes as Christians, we forget what Jesus told his followers. Let me remind you of a couple things Jesus told his followers while he was here on earth. First of all, he said, do not marvel that the world hates you because it hated me first. And then Jesus later on said, you, speaking to his followers, will be hated by all men for my namesake. Now, you can, you know, twist that any way you want to. Basically, Jesus is telling his followers, why are you so surprised when the world hates you as a Christian because of who you follow, because of who you represent, because of what... Because we all know that we can even talk about religion. And a lot of times that's not going to stir people up and, and get their, you know, rancor up. But you start mentioning Jesus Christ and what you believe about him and who you believe him to be, and all of a sudden there's the division. And Jesus again even told his followers, I did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. I will divide families. I will divide fathers and mothers from children and all that. He laid that out to his followers. He said, I am a very divisive character because you are either for me or you are against me. And Jesus told his followers, you will be hated. So the hatred that Paul, in a sense, is absorbing here, a hatred that gets to the point where 40 Men band together and basically form a conspiracy that they will ambush Paul and murder him. 
all goes back to what Jesus said. That yes, they hate Paul, but they hate Paul because of Jesus. Because of who Paul is following, who Paul is proclaiming, who he's standing up for. And you and I need to be mindful of that as well. Why are we surprised that we live in a world where we are not embraced and where people just open up their arms and just, you know, want to hug us? I mean, that's just not going to happen. The message of the Bible to Christians is we are living and will exist until Jesus comes or until we die to go to be with Jesus in enemy territory, which is why we need to have hope in God and why Peter says to Christians, set your hope completely on the grace that will be revealed to you when Jesus Christ comes. Don't put your hope in anything on this earth. Put your hope in Jesus and on the grace that he will bring when he appears. So there's that. But now I want you to see this. This is great. Beginning in verse 16, through re the rest of chapter 23, Though we have the conspiracy being described in verses 12 to 15, now we have Paul's deliverance described in verses 16 through the rest of the chapter. And oh, what a deliverance it is. And I hope that all of us tonight will be heartened and encouraged by what we are seeing here in this passage of Scripture. Because here's a situation where if you and I were looking at it humanly, we'd go, there's no hope, right? Forty people have basically put their lives on the line and saying, Paul's a dead man. What can we do against that? And again, I don't know what forces may be against you right now or what obstacles are in your way or what challenges are in your way, but this is a great example of what Paul said to the Romans. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't care if it's 40 or 400 or 4,000. If God said to Paul, you must testify in Rome, then God is going to make sure that Paul gets to Rome. And God is going to make sure that Paul is protected and provided for. And the same God that did that to Paul is the same God that can do that for you and I. Because notice what the Bible says in verse 16. That the son of Paul's sister overhears the ambush plot. Wait a minute. I didn't even know Paul had a sister up until this point. No, no mention is ever made, named of Paul's family, and all of a sudden now, when Paul's about ready to die, oh, now it's mentioned Paul has a sister. Okay, good. And then Paul's sister has a son. So Paul's nephew, a young man, is just at the right place at the right time to overhear this plot. Do you not think our God is in the details of life? I mean, only God could have made sure that Paul's nephew was in a place where he could overhear this knowing that his nephew then would take this information to Paul which is exactly what he did. You see, again, God doesn't need some great army, although he's going to use the Roman army here, and we're going to see that in just a moment too. But God doesn't need some great... God can use a young man 
to basically bring about or begin to bring about his deliverance. This young man, the age of these youth back here tonight, was used by God to save maybe the greatest missionary the church has ever known. Right place at the right time. Again, don't miss this point here. God is in the details of our life, and God doesn't miss anything. And if God could make sure that Paul's young nephew was at that place, then God can take care of us, and he can handle all those details of our life that sometimes we begin to worry and fret about. Then Paul's nephew comes to Paul, tells Paul the plot, this ambush plot. So Paul relays this information to one of the centurions that's guarding him at this point, and basically Paul requests that the centurion take his nephew to the commander in charge, Lysias, and let him know what's going on. And the amazing thing is the Roman commanders and centurions Basically, listen to Paul. You know, they could have said, we could care less. If they want to kill you, they can kill you. No. And so the centurion takes Paul's nephew to the commander in charge of the Roman army that's stationed there in Jerusalem. And when this young boy basically relays what he overheard, the commander says to him, do not tell anybody about this conversation. And then, here's the amazing thing. Notice in verse 23 and 24 what the commander of the Roman uh, army in Jerusalem does next. He dispatches 200 soldiers, 70 cavalrymen, or horsemen as the Net Bible says, and then 200 more Spearmen, 470 soldiers. What are they going to do? They're going to take Paul to Caesarea, and they're going to guard Paul all the way there. And then the Bible says in verse 24 that they give Paul mounts. Now notice, that's plural. Not just one steed or one horse. They give him several horses. Get the picture here. These Jews want to kill Paul. And they hate him so bad. And God, in his sovereignty and, and all of this, is using his nephew to protect Paul. And now he's using the greatest army on earth at this point, the Roman army, to protect Paul and get him to his next destination. Those 40 people don't stand a chance against the most powerful soldiers on earth at that time. And here's Paul. You can just picture it. He's riding this beautiful white horse. You say mounts because all of his stuff, his parchments, his books, they've packed those on the other horses. And here comes Paul just riding into Caesarea with 470 Roman soldiers around him. And you want to talk about a God that has everyone and everything at his disposal, and, and he'll just start pulling all this out and using it for his children and for his glory. Amazing God that we have. Now we realize there's going to come a point where the Romans are going to turn against Paul too. But at this point, they are simply an instrument in the hands of the Almighty God. 
they are going to make sure that Paul gets to Caesarea. And so the rest of the chapter is where the commander in charge, Lysias now, sends a letter explaining the situation and why he's doing the things that he's doing to the governor, Felix, who is now in Caesarea and who's now going to hear Paul's case there. So he wants him to know, why are all these Roman soldiers coming with this prisoner? What's, what's going on here? So he's informing him of that. And then the end of the chapter basically tells us Paul, with the help of the Roman army, safely arrives in Caesarea. By the way, one more just sort of historical point here, but I think it's so cool, is that at that time in history, there were only like around 600 Roman soldiers stationed in Jerusalem at that time altogether. So now think about it. 470 of them, like 80% or so, is actually helping Paul get to Caesarea. There's only like 100 or so that's left behind in Jerusalem at that point. The majority of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem are helping Paul get to his destination. Amazing, amazing story about an amazing God and the amazing deliverances that he can bring about in our lives, just like he did Paul. So you have this great conspiracy, but you have this great God bringing about a great deliverance. I hope that will encourage you because going back to 2311, God is always near to us and that's why he tells us, have courage because you can find all the courage you need in me. Build your life upon me and you will have all the confidence and courage that you need. Well, let's move into chapter 24. When we come to chapter 24, it takes a few days for Ananias, the high priest, and a few of the other elders, and then now they're going to bring this attorney named Tertullus, who on their part, very wise move, is a Roman attorney, down to Caesarea basically to prosecute this case against Paul to bring accusation. And notice in 24.1, it says, they come to bring formal charges against Paul to Felix, the governor. And they are hoping basically to get Felix to basically give Paul the thumbs down and do away with him. And their charges are basically three things. If you read the first nine verses of Acts 24, basically it's Paul's a troublemaker, he stirred up trouble everywhere he goes. He's a religious heretic, and he's desecrated the temple. Well, I guess you could nitpick, but really all of those charges are without merit. He really is none of those. In fact, as Paul begins his defense in verse 10, one of the things he says there in that passage of Scripture is, I've only been in Jerusalem 12 days. How much damage could I do? You know? I haven't been there that long. But I want us to take this away from these nine verses in Acts 24. How can I apply the accusations of these Jewish authorities now using a Roman attorney against Paul? How can I get anything out of that in my life? Well, let's not forget. Who does the Bible describe the devil as being? Our accuser. And what we have to realize is, you and I, again, as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, sometimes are going to face accusations 
from our spiritual enemy. And sometimes from other human beings like Paul, we are going to face false accusations. People are going to accuse us of things that are not true, just as they have Paul. What do you and I do in a situation like that? When we are accused wrongly or falsely, what is a Christian to do? I will tell you what we should do every time. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. And let the results up to God. So you notice now, after this passage on the accusations or the formal prosecution or charges being brought against Paul, that again, beginning in verse 10, down through verse 21 of Acts 24, Paul mounts his defense. And basically, Paul says, they can't prove me guilty of any of these things. Their charges are without merit. They, they don't stand up. And basically, he's telling Felix, and you know it. You know it. If there would have been a problem, if there would have been a real issue, Lysias or one of the Roman commanders back in Jerusalem would have taken care of me. The reason they're protecting me is they understand I've not really done anything worthy of death. But then he says this, talking about speaking the truth. If you go down to verse 14, he does make this confession or claim. He says, I worship the God of our ancestors, but I worship him according to the way. Notice that phrase again that describes the lifestyle of a follower of Jesus Christ. It was Luke's way of talking about the early church and Christianity at this point. We are a way because we follow the way, the truth, and the light. What I want us to note there, though, is this. Paul is making a very important point. He is saying to the Jews that there is no contradiction between, if you will, the Old Testament and the coming of Jesus. And really what he's setting up eventually is there's no contradiction between the Old Testament and the New Testament like even some people might think there is today or like somehow, you know, uh, the Old Testament and New Testament should be separated. No, it's one story. It's just that the Old Testament is part A and the New Testament is part B, but they don't contradict each other. And that's where some Christians, we've got to be careful when we think that, well, God was a totally different God in the Old Testament than he is in the New Testament. Be careful about that stance. That's why the Bible teaches that people in the Old Testament had to come to, to salvation, if you will, the same way they do in the New Testament, by faith. That's why the New Testament writer spends a lot of time on people like Abraham, saying Abraham didn't come to God into a relationship with God by works, by doing enough good works. He came to God through his faith, the same way we do. There is no contradiction between the Old Testament and New Testament. And Paul is basically saying, I had to see the light that all that I knew about the Old Testament didn't contradict the coming of Jesus Christ and who Jesus was and who he claimed to be and all of that. It actually was predicted in the Old Testament. He's actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament. That's what Paul's stating in verse 15 or 14. But then in verse 15, he says, 
I have hope in God. That is so vital for all of us. That's what Christ wants all of us to have. Hope in him. And Paul basically goes on then to, to say, my hope is really centered in resurrection. And here in this contest, he's talking about the future resurrection of all mankind. But obviously we know that Paul's hope in future resurrection is based on another resurrection. Everything flows out of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, if you and I truly believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then that verifies everything that God said, everything that Jesus taught. All of his claims are true if he rose from the dead which is why, like my son Stephen, does a seminar every year on the resurrection and why we talk about that a lot here, because our faith really is founded. Paul says to the Corinthians, if the dead do not rise, then we are left in our sins and our faith is futile and our preaching is in vain and all that. It all falls or rises on the fact, the historical fact of the resurrection. Everything you and I believe, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, it's all a lie. If he did rise from the dead, it's all, it's all true. And so Paul is basically saying, the reason I have hope is because I know Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And how does Paul know that so sure? Because <laughs> Paul met him on the road to Damascus. Paul actually met Jesus Christ, the one that he saw crucified in Jerusalem. He heard his voice. He said, Lord, who are you? And Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Paul met Jesus, the one who was crucified and who died, but who rose again. And so Paul is basically saying, all hope that I have is based on the resurrection. Everything then flows from that as far as Paul's theology is concerned. That's one of the visions I think God has for his people and why we need to know what we believe and why we believe it and why we can have such courage and confidence and conviction do we truly understand these things? Well, then Paul basically goes on and says, if I've done anything wrong, anything at all, verse 21, it's because I stood up in the midst of all my brothers in Jerusalem and said, I have hope in the resurrection. That's what I'm on trial for, Felix, that I have hope in the resurrection. Now we come to verse 22 through 26. And here I want us to see beyond the accusations against Paul at the beginning of the chapter and the defense of Paul sort of in the middle of the chapter that as we move to the end of this chapter, we have two decisions by Felix that are very important and, and, and can shed a lot of light even on not only this chapter, but I think some light into our own lives. Let's take the first decision. The first decision that Felix makes after hearing Paul's defense is this. He says, I'm going to wait and make a decision about this whole deal uh, until Lysias, the commander in charge of the Roman garrison there in Jerusalem, can join us, and I can hear what he has to say about this and his perspective on this. Now, some might say, well, why didn't Lysias come up with the rest of the Roman army that was guarding Paul to get him there? Why did he stay back in Jerusalem? I think for this very reason that, again, 
most of the soldiers had went with Paul to Caesarea, and yet Lysias knew that there was a lot of unrest amongst the Jews in Jerusalem. And I think one of the reasons why Lysias stayed behind for a few days was to make sure that no major revolt or no major riots or something would break out uh, very soon after Paul had left for Caesarea because he was in charge of making sure that Jerusalem stayed at peace. There could have been another reason, and that is that initially Felix didn't feel like there was much of a case against Paul at all, so he, he even said, I don't need you to come up and testify. But now after hearing it, Felix wants to hear from Lysias. So he says, Paul, I want to delay my decision until I can hear from him. But notice what his next decision is. He says, I'm going to put a guard around you, but I want them, while they're guarding you, to give you some freedom. In other words, you're not going to be as restricted as most of the people that I place in confinement. And he says, I want to make sure that any friends that you have can come and visit you while you are here waiting on this verdict. I thought to myself when I read that, how precious is that? Because how important would that have been at this point in Paul's life? That Yes, he had the Lord with him, but how important is it at times in our life to know, yes, we've got God with us, but we've got a few friends willing to stand with us too. And I just can only imagine when his friends visited him that there was probably a lot of prayers being prayed and a lot of encouragement going back and forth and a lot of comfort and a lot of strengthening going on as these friends were meeting with Paul and being allowed to meet with him while he waited for the trial. But then I want you to see this next decision that Felix makes that is much more spiritually destructive to Felix himself. The Bible tells us that Felix and his wife, Drusilla, who's a Jew, actually request for Paul to come and to be in their presence and to speak with them about this faith in Christ Jesus. And the Bible tells us that as Paul was basically laying out what this meant, talked to them about things like righteousness and self-control and the judgment to come, that the Bible basically tells us that Felix got frightened. You know what that is another way of saying it? Felix was under conviction. You know what that's like to be under conviction? I hope so, because if you've never been under conviction that means you're probably not a Christian. Because in order to even become a Christian, you and I have to come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit that we are sinners, that there's something wrong between us and God, and we've got to get it right. And that's exactly where Felix was. As he heard about Paul expounding about faith in God, he came under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But notice his decision. Instead of taking that moment, as many do, where the Holy Spirit brings us to a point where we could make a decision that is life-altering and life-changing and, and will, will shape our eternal destiny, he pushes it away and says, go away for now. I'll call you when I'm ready to hear more about this again, when another opportunity arises, or as some translations said, in a more convenient season. 
As far as we know, Felix never did come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this is a great sort of cautionary tale for us, that this decision by Felix is one that many human beings make, where the Holy Spirit, whether we're Christians or not Christians, brings us to a place where we are under conviction, where the Holy Spirit is moving. And instead of making that step, that choice, that decision to to sort of follow that out and run that out, we basically shut down, we put our wall up, and we say, nope, not going there. And then we lose that sort of that, that moment that God brought us right up to that point, and we like squash it. We like put water right on the flame. And there's no guarantee that we're going to get back to that point again, which is why... What I see in Felix's decisions, both of them, is that Felix has a problem in his life, more than one, but here, in this context, he's a procrastinator. And it's a good word for us, because many times in our life, you know, we'll just keep putting things off. You know, Felix was that typical politician, that, because Paul was a political hot potato, he just wanted to keep kicking Paul down the field and not wanting to deal with Paul. In fact, we know that because in a minute we're going to learn that Paul actually spent two more years there, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Felix didn't want procrastinator. I don't want to deal with it. And then in his own soul, I, I don't want to deal with it. I'm putting it off. I I'll come back when I'm, you know, when I'm more ready. Procrastination can really hurt us in our lives. It can hurt us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And we need to make sure that when God is doing a work in our life and he's moving, that we just keep on going with God and that we don't shut the Holy Spirit down. That we do not quench the Holy Spirit. That we do not turn him off like Felix did right here at this moment. So we've seen in Acts 24 the accusations against Paul We've seen the defense of Paul himself, and we've seen these decisions that Felix has made. But I want to leave you with this tonight. In the very last verse of Acts 24, I want you to see from this perspective the providence of God. Yes, that's the way I'm labeling it, the providence of God. Why? Because we are informed in Acts 24, 27, that Paul was left in prison by Felix for two more years. Now we know we get a little bit of insight too as to why that was. Notice it says that Felix kept wanting to, for Paul to come because he thought that Paul might be willing to give him a bribe and get him out a little earlier. Felix didn't know Paul very well, did he? The chance of Paul giving him a bribe to get him out, not going to happen, right? And it didn't. That's why Paul stayed for two more years. But what I want us to see, because I think this is so applicable to our Christian life and our walk with God and sometimes our struggle to keep our hope in God, is that we would look at this from a human perspective and go, God, what are you thinking? This is the greatest missionary maybe that the church has ever had. And you're going to keep him locked up for two years where he can't move around and where he can't start churches and he... He can't do all these wonderful things. What are you thinking, God? And can I say, if we're honest, we've been there in our lives where it's like, God, 
I don't understand. Why are you doing this or why are you not doing this? It doesn't make any sense. Two years, Paul is stuck in Caesarea and nothing is moving forward. Yeah. Now, eventually, as God promised Paul, Paul's going to get to Rome, but probably not as quick as Paul thought. And isn't that true in our lives many times? Is we might get to the place that we know God is, is showing us we're going to get there, but we sure take a lot of twists and turns, and it sure does take a lot longer to get there than we thought it was going to take. Paul had that same experience. And yet, can you imagine every day Paul waking up, having a little freedom, yes, having his few friends there to visit him, but still sort of being confined and not being able to go anywhere or live life like any... And, and here, let's not forget, has Paul done anything wrong? Nope. They've never proven that Paul's done anything illegal, anything immoral, anything. Innocent man, and yet he's in jail basically for two years. What is God doing? And why is God taking so long? Providence of God. You see, back to where we started, God wants us to have a solid hope in him because his ways are not our ways. And his timing, can I say, is not our timing. Things take way longer with God than they would with us, right? Because God is never in a hurry. God is always more concerned and focused on other things than just getting us from point A to point B. There's way more involved with God in all of our lives, just like Paul. And so often, you and I might be, my goodness, what a waste. Paul's stuck there for two years and can't minister. Haven't you and I been in situations and seasons of our life where we're like, God, I feel stuck here. Can't we just get on to the next thing? And it's like we just, we're not released yet by God and, and we're, there, there's no open door yet to get from where we're at to where we're going and we just feel like I'm just here. God, why? Hope in God. Hope in God. Because what may not make sense to us as human beings makes perfect sense to the all-wise God. And his timing is always, always, right on time. His timing is perfect, which is why it is so important, like Paul, that we have hope in God. One more thing, and then I'll let you go. I'm not saying that Paul maybe never had a bad day and never struggled, because he's human. But for the most part, there is no record of Paul ever, like, pining away for two years in Caesarea, saying... God, why? Why me, God? He had learned to accept and embrace the providence of God and to say God must have a very, very good reason of why he's got me in Caesarea for two more years. 
Especially considering, too, that Paul, as far as we know, did not write anything while he was in Caesarea like he did when he got to Rome and wrote the books of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, which, by the way, if I can throw this quick advertisement out, we're going to start studying those books in just a few weeks when we get done our study of Acts. But what I want us to leave with tonight ringing in our hearts and ringing in our ears is that phrase from 2415, I have hope in God. That's where God wants all of us tonight, to put our hope in him. Because if we do, it is well-founded. God will never let us down. God is faithful, dependable, reliable, and trustworthy. And he always has our best interests at heart if there's some delay or some situation that we can't make sense out of. It makes perfect sense to God. So God is saying to us, put your hope in me. Let's pray. God, I thank you tonight for this great example of a man who maybe to us would have seemed like you were punishing him. You were putting a great Christian on the shelf for two years. But yet, God, your ways are not our ways. Your timing is not our timing. And that's why you call your people to have hope in you. God, I don't know what each of these folks are dealing with in their life, but I know this, there's never a moment in our lives, there's never a season in our lives where we shouldn't be putting our hope in you. And so God, I pray that our hope is strong and that maybe even by being here tonight through our worship and through the word, that our hope has been strengthened here tonight in you, God. May we all go home tonight with a strong hope in a wonderful and an amazing God. These things we pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you folks. We'll see you next week.